invite you now to take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Today, as we come to the end of this chapter in our studies in Luke, we come to this well-known passage of the two sisters, Martha and Mary. I don't know if you've noticed, but over the last several months' worth of studies through Luke, as we're going sequentially through the book, we have seen a common theme, and that being the theme of discipleship. We've seen Jesus calling uh, his disciples and ministering through his disciples and teaching them what it is to, to follow him and to be a disciple and what it is they ought to do as disciples. And today this, this comes to a, a, a sort of a conclusion as uh, we'll begin uh, studying in different directions, no, though not completely leaving the theme of discipleship next week, Lord willing, as we come to consider the Lord's Prayer and, and how we approach the Lord as disciples. But, but this is something of the end of, of a mini section in Luke's gospel where uh, his people have been doing uh, and sending and ministering uh, in lots of ways. Uh, and now we find uh, a, a more intimate picture in a home, one that, that many of us uh, are familiar with. And so we'll read today uh, the story of Martha and Mary, Luke chapter 10. We'll begin our studies in verse 38 and read to the end of the chapter in verse 42. It's on page 869, if you haven't picked up uh, if you have picked up one of our cart Bibles, uh, Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38. And before we read God's word together, let's go together uh, again in prayer and ask that he would uh, add its blessing as we read it. Oh, gracious Lord, our God, we pray that you would make us hearers of your word. Clear out the distractions, oh Lord, that we so often bring in with us. Clear out the anxieties and the troubles clear out those things that would cloud our minds and our hearts from beholding Christ. Help us to hear. Help us to sit and listen. Help us to rejoice in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. As far as the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add its blessing as we study it together today. Here we are. Uh, we have made it uh, to the passage that uh, many of you have been looking forward to and the rest of us have been dreading. Uh, you read uh, the story of Mary and Martha in most uh, churches and every high-achieving type A personality in the congregation braces for impact. It's the kind of unique passage that can make mothers feel guilty uh, for keeping everybody fed and clothed and clean uh, each week. It's the kind of passage that we come away uh, expecting that we will be called uh, by these verses into some quiet space filled with, with scented candles where we can write bad poetry and practice the presence of God, and we know how it goes. You've probably heard a sermon or two or a devotional thought on having a heart like Mary in this busy, frenzied world. And the passage itself is not, 
complicated. It's pretty clear. It tells us the story of two sisters and their relationship to the Lord and this, uh, this gathering in a home that they have. And we can read uh, and know that Mary made the right choice and Martha missed the point. We read that Mary chose to be with Jesus while Martha chose to do for Jesus. Mary chose to sit and to worship, and Martha chose to stand and to work. Mary chose quietness and attentiveness, and Martha was running and fussing with busyness. And if your natural spiritual inclination is to do more rather than to do less, it's amazing how threatened we can feel by quiet, pensive Martha. And so we steal ourselves for the call to devotion. And that's a, that's a valid application, by the way, as, as we get started uh, in this passage. I don't, I don't want to do that thing where I normally do and I say, you know what you think this means? It means something totally different. No, that, that's a real application from this passage. We, we ought to come away uh, encouraged to devotion in the Lord. We ought to make uh, communion with Christ a priority of our daily lives. Some of you type A Christians need to cool it a little bit on on the faith that's always looking for something else to do for Jesus. That's a valid application of this passage. But at its foundation, this passage really isn't about the toxicity of achievement culture. This passage is not about Christian growth through simply leaning your head on the heartbeat of God. That's not what we learn here. This isn't about the false dichotomies of being versus doing or work versus worship. That's not what this passage is really about. This passage is about listening to Jesus. This passage is about whether you are willing uh, to do the hard work of allowing Jesus and his word uh, to enter into your life and to change what you understand about yourself or whether you expect him to listen to what you have to say to him. This passage is about listening to Jesus. And that's the work that every Christian is called to do. This is our big idea for the day, that that the first duty of every Christian is listening to Jesus. Say it again so you don't miss it, that the first duty of Christian discipleship is listening to Jesus. And from these two sisters, we learn two very important spiritual truths about what it means to be a listening disciple. From Martha, first of all, we learn the danger of spiritual distraction. Now, based on on the relationship that we witness uh, in John 11 and 12, where we remember that picture and that passage of the raising of Lazarus, and then uh, in chapter 12, after the raising of Lazarus, Jesus is again in this village, and Martha is again putting out a spread. We see that Martha does seem to be the kind of woman who always wants to serve the Lord, and that's not a bad thing. Perhaps that's where we need to start today, in understanding that, that Martha wasn't wrong for wanting to serve. She wanted to welcome. She received Jesus when he came to Bethany with all the hospitality that she could muster, and that meant uh, probably all the meals and all the dishes and all the cleaning that went along with it, and she was a busy woman, and that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to want to serve. In these days, in, in this culture, hospitality was one of, if not the, chief virtue of the ancient world. It was a supreme insult If a visiting traveler came to you, even an unexpected guest, and you did not give them some kind of meal, 
a Jewish family was known for their hospitality, whether or not they were willing to open their home and to welcome those who came to them. And that, that impulse carries over into the New Testament. We find in Romans chapter 12, we find in 1 Peter chapter 4, that believers now in the New Testament ought to practice hospitality with, without grumbling, Peter says, because he knows what hospitality sometimes feels like. Practice hospitality without grumbling. Seek to outdo one another in showing love. And, and then when Paul was teaching Timothy about how to we, meet uh, the needs of the widows in the church, he singled out, you know, there are some women that we ought to pay particular attention to, he said. There are, there are women whose godliness goes before them, and you can see it in their Christian character. These are the women you ought to care for, he says. And, and who are they? Well, they're the women who looked a lot like Martha. 1 Timothy chapter 5 Verses 9 and 10 says, let a widow be enrolled in, in the church's care. Let a widow be enrolled if she has a reputation for good works. If she's brought up children, if she's shown hospitality, if she's washed the feet of the saints, if she's cared for the afflicted and devoted herself to every good work. So praise the Lord for hardworking women, hardworking men for that matter. You see, work isn't, isn't the problem. And in fact, there, there's something about Martha that's supremely realistic. She understands that, that there's always going to be something that needs to be done, something to be done in the church, something to be done in the world, and if those things are going to be accomplished, somebody has to roll up their sleeves and actually do the work of doing these things. There's a realism about Martha. Rudyard Kipling wrote a poem called The Sons of Martha. He says, the sons of Mary, the sons of Mary smile and are blessed. They sit at the feet. They hear the word. They see how truly the promise runs. They have cast their burden upon the Lord, and the Lord, he lays it at the feet of Martha's sons. Now, we maybe uh, aren't that cynical. We, we wouldn't take that same tack as, as Kipling, but at least he's got some realism about him. And we're realistic as well, which is why, if you look in our bulletin, we support a whole long list of Martha-esque ministries and missionaries. If you're going to sit here and listen to the word, that means that some Martha-like family had to show up before you got here and set it all up for you. There's coffee to be made. There's a sound system to be run. There is a nursery to be staffed so that parents can listen to the word of God. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad impulse to want to give hard work for Jesus' sake. In fact, Martha's welcome for Jesus is just what Jesus has been telling his disciples to look for for the last two chapters as he sent them out. Do you remember what he said? Go out and stay where they receive you, where they welcome you. He told them, whoever receives a child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And on the opposite side, those who reject you reject me and reject the one who sent me. And there's, there's something laudable about those who receive Christ, receive his, his missionaries, his ministers, and now the same word shows up in a different form. It's the word that's translated welcome in this first verse. Jesus was in a certain town, and a woman named Martha received him. She she welcomed him. What a wonderful thing. So hard work wasn't Martha's problem. Martha's problem was distraction. Read again verses 39 and 40. It says, Mary uh, sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching, but Martha was distracted with much serving. That was the issue. 
She was working so hard for Jesus that it actually became a disturbance that drew her attention away from the one that she ought to be working for. Now, the word uh, distracted here is almost violent. It means to be dragged away, almost as if underneath all of the details, Martha had this heart that wanted to get close to Jesus, that wanted to hear what he had to say, that wanted to pay attention to who he was, and yet all of these things piled up on top of one another, and they became this, this almost uh, this, this unbeatable force that drew her away. She was distracted, and Jesus diagnoses it later. He calls it anxiety and trouble. And that was her problem. Now, the truth is, we're not told exactly what was so distracting for Martha. We don't know what, what details uh, she was anxious about, but I think we can search our own hearts and understand how easily that sort of thing happens. It could be that, that she was distracted by trying to do too much for Jesus. That's the way it always goes in my household. Sarah will plan a meal for our guests, and I will very helpfully wonder out loud if we're going to have enough. I'll make suggestions like, well, maybe we should have another side dish. Maybe a second dessert. Maybe, maybe we should have appetizers so that we can eat while we wait to eat. And she's always right, and we always have plenty. But I've, I've got this impulse. I want to do more. I want to I add a few more burdens that she can work on while I'm finishing up the sermon on a Saturday evening, and she can prep it all. And uh, no sweat off my brow. Maybe, maybe Martha was worried about doing too much for Jesus. But then there's the anxiety of actually having Jesus in your home. I mean, that's got to be worse than hosting your in-laws two weeks after the honeymoon. And there are at least three families in this room that understand exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> I mean, you're worried that your in-laws are going to show up and they're going to notice if the pork chops are dry. They're going to notice if the potatoes are mealy. And you wonder if maybe your mother-in-law is staring at that one spot on the floor that you forgot to mop. And suddenly, hospitality, rather than being a way to open your home and to, and to share your blessings with others and to welcome them, it becomes, it becomes an opportunity to prove yourself. And it doesn't matter. If you're the only one who's keeping score, there's a sort of anxiety. And can you imagine having Jesus in your home? Lord, I, I brought you a few loaves, maybe a few fish. Really, let me show you what I can do with that. There's a certain anxiety, maybe. We understand how it happens. And then... Then there's the frustration of always being the one who's left in the kitchen. Somebody's got to do it. And you can hear uh, the chatter out there in the living room and everybody's having just a wonderful time and you scrub the pots and you begin to seethe and you start to wonder, when, when is somebody else going to come in here and let me go sit and put up my feet? And th there are all sorts of things and we don't know what Martha's hang-up was. She could have been given to perfectionism or, or pride. She could have been ashamed to offer too little to Jesus, but we do know that it is perfectly possible to serve the Lord in ways that forget the Lord that we're supposed to be working for. Doesn't that happen to you? Paul writes uh, in Colossians, we read it last week, Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 to 23, he's, he's speaking to Christian slaves in the first century, and he tells them, obey your earthly masters, not as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Now that principle could be applied to housewives or, or professionals or programmers or, 
or, uh, you know, engineers, anybody who might be sitting in the congregation this morning. The same principle that we ought to work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, and yet how easily we go from working heartily for the Lord to working heartily for ourselves. Working heartily so that somebody else will notice the effort that we're putting in. Working heartily so that somebody else will come along and say, you know, without you, I bet nothing would ever get done around here. We say, that's right, actually. <laughs> that's right. I'm the one. How easily we shift the focus, isn't it? And it can happen in your job. It can happen in your parenting. It certainly happens in the church. It happens every week for pastors all around the world. And they come into the pulpit and they've got this, this wonderful message that they've worked hard to craft and want to see God's people edified, want to see God glorified, and really end up standing at the back of the sanctuary and waiting for somebody to come along and say, that was just the best message. Oh, oh so many notes today. Oh, they say, oh thank you. And, and we feign. Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad the Lord used that. And inside we're going, all right, yeah. yeah. And it happens. It happens in the church. It happens for pastors. It happens for Sunday school teachers. It happens for nursery workers. It happens, uh, the, the temptation here lies dormant in the work of the deacons. Those who lead Bible studies, those who stack the chairs after the service. The truth is, there is no job so small in the church that we can't turn it into an opportunity to pay attention to ourselves and what we're doing rather than paying attention to the Lord. And every ministry, every service can become a spiritual distraction if our eyes are drawn away from focus on Christ and toward our own performance. And when that happens, you can see what comes next, because it happens for Martha. When our service to Christ becomes a distraction from Christ, it almost always leads to resentment. Notice uh, the rebuke in Martha's response. Not to Mary, by the way. To Jesus. When, when her frustrations finally boil over, when she can't stand it any longer and she's just got to say something, what does she do? She goes up and she speaks her mind to the Savior. She starts well enough. At least she, she starts with the right title. Lord, she says. That is, Master. <laughs> the one who is in charge, even though you happen to be my guest. Lord, she says, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Now, this is what we call a rhetorical question. She didn't expect Jesus to answer. She didn't give him space to answer. In fact, the, the question is asked in such a way that it assumes the positive answer. Why, yes, actually, uh, Martha, I am as burned up as you are that, that you're in there slaving while Mary's here sitting. It assumes the answer, and then she launches right into the next thing. The next thing out of her mind is a command. The ESV says then, but it's probably better therefore. Since, Lord, Master, you care so much, since I know that you care, that I'm all alone, Tell my sister to come and help me, therefore. And here we have Martha, giving her domestic solutions to the one that she's just called Lord. And, and it goes that way when our anxious labors draw us away from the Lord that we're supposed to be serving. It almost always begins with self-pity. And then it begins to turn into resentment. It turns into resentment toward all those other people who aren't working as hard in our family or in the church or in the world as we are working. Why isn't their priority the same as our priority? 
And then finally it turns into resentment, maybe even toward the Lord, because he's not sending us the help that we think that we need. Folks, here's a challenge for those of you who work hard in the church, and there are a lot of you. The truth is that we need you. We can always use more helping hands in the church. There never seems to be enough hands to do all that needs to be done, but if you are part of that proverbial 20% that always feels like they're doing the 80% of the work, watch out that your zeal for action doesn't leave you tempted to grumble to Jesus about what other believers aren't doing. Be careful lest you begin to judge the servant of another master by your own ambitions and your own actions. That's the danger of spiritual distraction. Not necessarily a danger in work per se, but a danger in working in a way that leaves us first distracted from the Savior that we're serving and then disgruntled at those around us and finally demanding and bitter if Jesus isn't hopping to when we call him to lead others to help us out. Beware the danger of spiritual distraction. And instead, learn the lesson of Mary. Remember the duty of a listening discipleship. Those are our points today. Beware the danger of spiritual distraction and remember the duty of a listening discipleship. Let's not make this too complicated, okay? Uh, What was it that Mary was engaging in? What was the action she was doing that Jesus said was so laudable? What was the one thing that was necessary that she was doing that, that Jesus refused to pull her away from? She was listening. Verse 39 again, Martha had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. She listened. She put herself in a position to absorb the truth that Jesus spoke. Martha was in the kitchen making the bread alone, and Mary filled her soul with every every word that proceedeth from the mouth of Christ. Mary was listening to Jesus. This is an important distinction. Because as obvious as it is, many people miss this. We miss it because it's far more attractive to turn this into something psychological or something mystical rather than something practical. And so Mary, uh, they tell us, what was really wonderful about Mary was her stillness. Oh, her quietude. What was wonderful about Mary is that she was willing to say no to the rush of activity in order to simply sit in the significance of the moment with Jesus. Doesn't it sound wonderful? In 2012, there was a church in England, in in Sussex, St. Peter's Church, and they released a CD, and uh, a Taiwanese newspaper, uh, made a lot of news apparently, a Taiwanese newspaper picked it up and and called it a half hour of absolutely nothing. It was a recording, actually, of the ambient sounds inside the historic uh, sanctuary at St. Peter's in Sussex. And it began uh, with, with a spoken introduction, and, and then there were some shuffling noises, a few footsteps, a quiet <coughs> off in the distance somewhere, but mostly just 30 minutes of, of almost complete silence. And it's on SoundCloud now. You can't buy the CD anymore, but it's on SoundCloud if you want to send me an email, and I'll send you a link. And you can listen to this 30 minutes of, of silence for yourself, but the introduction begins this way. A few words from the rector. The rector says, and I'll try to do it in, in his slow, silent voice, silence rejuvenates the spirit. Deep silence enables deep encounter. Encounter with God, and indeed with our own true self. 
And he continues. He, he, says, uh, he tells his listeners they should quieten your hearts and minds. Calm your active thinking. Listen in the silence for the sound of your own heartbeat, indeed to the very heartbeat of God. Folks, if this sounds a little bit too hokey to be helpful for you in your spiritual development, this is exactly what many people do with Mary. They make her an emblem of, of quietude and and, and solitude and silent listening in the silence for your own heartbeat and your own ambitions and your own needs and maybe in the silence with, with nothing to occupy your mind, maybe that's where God will speak to you. And we're told that in our, our hustle bustle in our busy life, what we need is a quiet heart like Mary. And maybe that's true. But according to Luke's gospel, unless you also get Mary's ears, her heart isn't going to do a whole lot for you. What was wonderful about Mary and her discipleship it was that she listened to the words of Jesus. Don't lose this distinction, folks. There is a Trojan horse outside the gates of American Christianity just waiting for somebody to open the door and haul it in and say, yeah, this is good, we're going to do this now. That Trojan horse has a name, and it's called the practice of mindfulness meditation. Right? You've heard this. You cannot have lived in the world over the last five years without finding some entrepreneur, some spiritual guru, some quasi-Christian teacher, some celebrity talking about how wonderful it is to engage in the practice of mindfulness meditation. And what is it? It is the latest iteration of a long string of New Age Eastern mysticism meditation that Christians seem to flock to over the centuries. Despite what the name might say, mindfulness actually isn't about filling your mind with anything. Mindfulness, just like all other Buddhist meditation, and it does have roots in, in Buddhist meditation, by the way, mixed with a little bit of uh, pop psychology, mindfulness meditation really is about emptying your mind, removing everything that is not in the moment, all your fears, all your judgments, all your plans, all your worries. Get rid of everything that isn't right now so that you can be fully present, because that's what you need. You need a mind and a heart and a will and a judgment that is empty. And undiscerning Christians are flocking to this sort of thing because it seems to promise some relief from our busy world. Folks, the model of Christian discipleship is never to empty your mind of all the things that might be burdening you. The model that we find in the scriptures is to fill your mind with the word of God in Christ to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. That's what Mary did. She listened. She was willing to listen to Jesus. That was what was so wonderful about her and her discipleship. That's the lesson we need to hold on to from Mary. In fact, what we see in Mary is that she was willing to listen so much that she not only in this moment put aside the distractions of the kitchen but she put aside the distractions of her own understanding in order to lean on what the Lord had to teach her. Now we know that that's how Mary listened, in a sort of subservient, uh, receptive way. Not judging what the Lord had to teach her, but receiving what the Lord had to teach her. We know that that's how Mary listened, because we know where she listened. What does it say? She sat at the feet of of the Lord and listen to his teaching. That doesn't look like a whole lot to us, but in, in the first century, that's something of a technical term for a Jew, to say that they sat at the foot of a teacher. 
when Peter, I'm sorry, Paul, gives us a bit of uh, autobiography in Acts chapter 22, verse 3, he tells us he was brought up in Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. That is to say, Paul was a formal disciple of the rabbi Gamaliel. He made himself a disciple. He, he attached himself to Gamaliel so that later he could go around and tell other Pharisees, oh, really, well, I was, I was a disciple of Gamaliel. I was one of his, uh, his inner circle. I was one of his real disciples. I wasn't just out there on the periphery. You know, every, every traveling rabbi had this sort of amorphous group of people that came and went, and they would, they would glean a little bit here and glean a little bit there, and maybe they'd go from, from one teacher to another teacher, and we see even that same sort of thing happening with Jesus. And he says something difficult and challenging, and many of them leave, and they walk away. And, and he turns to his own disciples, those who sat at his feet. Do you, do you want to go away too, he said. Well, they didn't say, oh, no, no, we think that your word is easy to accept in John chapter 6. They said, you've got the words of life. Where else can we go? What other feet can we sit at? We are your disciples. That's what it means. It means that she sat and she took the place of a disciple in the first century. Now, when Luke tells us that Mary sat at the feet of Jesus, that means that he is telling us something important about Mary, and he's telling us something radical about Jesus. The important thing about Mary is that she listened in order to learn and to live. She didn't listen just for the sake of contemplation. Disciples followed their teacher, their rabbi, their whoever it was, in order that their lives could emulate his life that they could follow his rule, his way, his teaching in everyday living. Compare Mary to the one that we saw last week, this lawyer, who didn't sit at Jesus' feet, but stood up to ask him a question in order to test him. What did he want? He didn't want to learn. He didn't want to follow. He didn't want to, to be with the Lord. He wanted to trap the Lord in a theological quandary. Mary doesn't do that. She's submissive. She's a disciple, she receives the word. She takes it into her heart in order that it might bear fruit. In order that she can live it out. She listened to Jesus so that she could live like Jesus and serve like Jesus. That's what's important about Mary. But the radical part about Jesus is that he expects even women to become his disciples. Now in the first century there were all kinds of uh, understandings and opinions about the value of teaching women religion. One noteworthy rabbi said, may the words of Torah be burned rather than handed over to a woman. Now, that was the outlier, actually. Many more rabbis said, no, no, women ought to hear and they ought to, to listen and religion is good for all sorts of people and they would let them be a part of that amorphous crowd that sort of followed them around on the outside, on the periphery, but the radical thing is that there is not a single historical document that records for us any rabbi in Jesus' time who allowed women to come close and to sit at their feet and become a real disciple. But Jesus did. Jesus did. You know, in the ancient world, there was male space and there was female space, and ne'er the twain shall meet. That could be some of what was burning Martha up. Mary shouldn't have been out there with the men. She should have been in the kitchen where the women ought to be, preparing and working and laboring, and they would come and they would minister, and then they would retreat. Maybe that's what's going on. But there is this, this hard-line division between male space and female space in the ancient world, and all the more when you get into realms of, of religion and faith. And so Mary and Martha would have gone, perhaps with their brother Lazarus, to, to the local synagogue, 
And when they came in, they would have gone in two different directions. And the men and the women would have been separated, and very often the women were separated by a screen so that they couldn't be a, a distraction for the men who were trying to study the Torah and could learn the word of God. If Mary and Martha ever went with their brother up to the temple, they were again separated, or at least they were stopped. Women in that time would go into the temple for the worship of the Lord, the high holy ceremonies, and they could get just as far as the court of the women, and then they had to stop. While their husbands and their sons went further up and further in, closer to the altar where the lamb was sacrificed, where the prayers were offered. And there is this division of space, but now Jesus is in the home, and where is Mary? She's got a front row seat. She is sitting at the feet of the eternal word. She is listening to the voice that spoke creation into existence, and she is a disciple as all God's people ought to be. What does it teach us? Here's Mary in the house at Bethany. Here are the women, we think, in, in the upper room in the day of Pentecost. Here's Paul writing again to Timothy, telling him, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, 11, to let a woman learn with all quietness and submission. And I know that there are hang-ups and people pay attention to the second half of that verse, quietness and submission. Don't miss the first half. Paul says, let a woman learn. What does it all teach us? It teaches us that all of God's people are called to be disciples. It's true that in the church we have different roles. We have different gifting by the Spirit. Some are called to be evangelists, pastors, teachers, elders, missionaries, evangelists, whatever it might be. Not everybody is called to do the same thing in the church or have the same place in the church or the same role in the church, but we're all called to be disciples. We're all called to be listeners and learners to the Word of God. We're all called to fulfill that first duty of God's people. Luke chapter 9, verse 35, a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Folks, that's the first duty of discipleship. It's listening to Jesus. It's having a heart and having ears like Mary to hear what it is he has to teach us. So that leaves us only with the last piece of this passage, and that's Jesus' response when Martha made her demands of him. Now, you need to notice how, how tenderly Jesus responds to Martha. She came with, with what could be called nothing other than a rebuke, and Jesus refuses to return rebuke for rebuke. He speaks tenderly. He repeats her name, Martha, Martha. It's gentle. If anything, it's a redirection, maybe rather than a rebuke, but but he refuses to rebuke Martha. He also refuses to send Mary away from where she's sitting. He says in verse 42, Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Now those words are, are just ambiguous enough to give the scholars something to talk about and, and write uh, their books about before they all eventually come to the same conclusion, right? And that is that the good thing that Mary has chosen is listening to the Lord Jesus Christ hearing his word by faith. She has recognized the word of God on the Savior's lips. The point is not that Mary is this idle person while, while Martha is an overachiever. We shouldn't think that at every other banquet that Martha uh, held, that Mary was simply sitting there like some entitled teenager waiting to be served. 
That's not the point of this passage for us to think, well, this is what Martha's like and this is what Mary's like. No, this is a particular situation. This isn't about trying to figure out if, if spiritually you were a type A or a type B or a type D or whatever other uh, types there are personality-wise. That's not the point. The point is that she heard the word of Christ and she listened. She received a blessing that could be never, never be taken away. Now Luke doesn't record for us the sermon that Jesus preached to Mary and the rest of the disciples. We've been at this long enough. We, we can probably guess. I think it's a safe bet to assume that Jesus preached some other variation of the same passage, the same sermon that we've heard for the last six chapters as we've studied Jesus and his ministry. The same message that proclaimed that, that in him God's kingdom has come near to the people of God. He likely proclaimed that, that the Son of Man has come into the world to save sinners. And in saving sinners to himself, he calls them to a life of service with a cross on their backs. And then after he has announced, after he's promised persecution and hardship and affliction, he calls them to hear and to repent and to believe the good news. And Mary sat and she listened to a message something like that. And Jesus says this will never be taken away from her. Experience would be taken away. A manner of speaking. Even if, even if Mary became like, like Peter and Andrew, who left their family, who left their belongings, and, and left everything, and became a constant hearer so they could hear every word that Jesus spoke, even if she spent the next two years, maybe, with Jesus, listening to every sermon he could preach, every place that he went, watching his miracles, seeing his glory, even if she devoted the rest of his life to hearing him, we know where Jesus is headed. He's already set his face to Jerusalem, we read, chapter 9. He's going up to the place where he is not headed to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. He's going up to the place where he will lay down his life of his own accord, and soon he is going to be gone. And Mary's going to be left with the memory of his voice in her mind and the truth of his words in her heart. And she's going to carry that back into her life. She's going to take it with her into her relationships, into her work. She'll probably take it with her into the kitchen as she stands beside Martha and helps out with the dishes and the cooking. You see, there's a change in those who have taken time to listen to Jesus. The change is the beginning of a life of discipleship. A life that involves listening and trusting in Christ's words more than we trust ourselves. It's a life full of service and good works for the sake of Christ. It's a life that opens into eternity with him that can never be taken away. Mary chose the good portion. She listened to Jesus by faith. May the Lord grant to us also that we would remember that first duty of discipleship. That he would make us listeners to Jesus. Please join me in prayer.